You are listening to Overcomers Church International Podcast. Here at OCI, we are dedicated to our vision of building strong people and building strong churches. From wherever you are listening, we hope that this message leaves you equipped and encouraged. Well, some years ago, maybe five or six years, I was in a movie theater, and I was watching one of those movies that were depicting the crucifixion of Jesus. And from the very beginning of the movie was this crackling throughout the speaker system. And it just got super annoying. Like 15 minutes in, 20 minutes in, I was like, all right, this is enough of this. I am getting up and I'm going to tell a manager and I'm going to ask for my money back or something. And so I got up and I got to the edge of the row in the theater there when something stopped me in my tracks. It was this this word, this thought that popped into my mind and what it said was, my story is always told through imperfect speakers. Well, I walked myself back to my seat (laughs) and I sat down and I shut up. I didn't really have much more desire to tell a manager about the imperfect speakers at that point. My story is always told through imperfect speakers. Now, that word has come back to me time and time again over the years as I have really asked the Lord about whether I was good enough and ready enough and just enough, you know, qualified enough to be doing what he's called me to do, especially this thing called ministry here. And if you could really listen to a replay of a lot of my life's prayers, and I suspect yours too, because as I've been doing ministry now for more than a decade, I've, I've realized that this is kind of a common thing for a lot of people. But if you could listen to a replay of my life's prayers, you'd hear a lot of, how can I, Lord, when I don't have the money? How can I, Lord, when I don't have the connections? How can I, Lord, when I don't have the family history? When I don't have the abilities, the strength, when I'm not good enough, ready enough, fixed enough, perfect enough? Anybody else pray that kind of prayer here? Do I have anybody that relates to this? Okay. For years, I tried. I mean, I tried to be perfect enough. I tried and I tried because I thought that that was the goal of the Christian life. I really thought that the goal of the Christian life was to be perfect like Jesus. And so I mustered up all the willpower that I could I tried all the disciplines. I did every super spiritual, charismatic solution in the books, all the deliverance curriculums, all the five steps to this, 10 steps to that. And what I realized is that the more that I tried, the actually the worse that I did. (laughs) Because inevitably, when my humanity would show itself and I would mess up or I would fail or whatever, then the guilt and the condemnation is there. And the devil knows it, which is why he strings us along with this dangling carrot, basically, of saying that 
if you will just try harder, if you will just do more, if you will just strive more, then maybe you can be right enough before God in order to get Him to love you more or in order to get Him to bless you more or then you'll get your breakthrough or then you'll get your healing, then you'll get your deliverance. And so we do. I mean, I did for so many years. It was this, what I kind of call the crazy cycle of self-righteousness, which is this, all right, I'm going to try harder and maybe, maybe I'll convince God to do something. And then inevitably I fail. And then the devil's there to tell you, oh, look what you've done. Try harder. And so then you try harder all to just do it over and over and over again. And so the Christian life becomes nothing but this pursuit of trying to re-earn God's love and re-earn your position and your peace before God. And it'll just about do you in. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, but isn't there a verse somewhere in Scripture that says to be perfect? Yeah, there is. And I'll look at probably the most popular one, just so we can kind of get this out of the way and move on with the rest of the message in case you're thinking, yeah, but what about these Scriptures? What about Matthew 5.48, where Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect? I mean, that sounds so clear, right? But how do, you, how do you explain that? Well, context is key like everything. I mean, I don't care what book you're reading. I don't care. I mean, especially the, a book the size of the Bible. I mean, you could pull out any verse. You could pull out any sentence and isolate it and get it to say just about anything. So, you know, the Bible was written at a specific time in a specific place to a specific group of people going through specific things. And the miracle of Scripture and what the Holy Spirit does is that He takes that Scripture so that it transcends time and speaks to us. But the best way for it to do it is for us to really know the who, what, where, when, and why as it was written. And so this verse here, when Jesus is saying, be perfect as I am perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect, they're part of a larger passage that you probably have heard of called the Sermon on the Mount. And that sermon was written to a Jewish audience. It was spoken to a Jewish audience. People who had lived lifetimes of daily sacrifices and lifetimes of trying to uphold 613 laws that started with the Ten Commandments and then a whole bunch of other ones that were added onto it by the religious leaders, all to try to maintain acceptance and peace with God. That's the audience that he was speaking to. And really, so much of what he was saying in that sermon was really confronting this idea that they could do enough to be good before God. He's really trying to get them to realize that you cannot possibly do enough. And so if we backtrack from that passage there where he says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, and we go to Matthew 5.43, we'll kind of get an idea of what he's talking about when he says perfection. What is he getting at here? And he says, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Now, I could preach a whole message just on that scripture, and I have before. But the gist that I want you to see there 
is that word enemies that Jesus uses is really a word to mean anybody that's different than you. And I'm talking like culturally, politically, that's a hard one. Religiously, anybody that thinks and talks and walks and maybe lives differently than you, this is what Jesus is saying. He goes on and he says in verse 45, in that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. So Jesus says, loving people who are different than you is really, if if you're going to have a goal at all, it's not going to be about how perfect you can be in your behaviors. If you're going to have a goal at all, the goal to have that would make you more like God is to love people like he does. That's what Jesus is really saying. And then in verse 47, he says, if you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even the pagans do that. I mean, these people, you have to understand, these people were people who really thought that they were maintaining their position with God based upon how separated they were from certain people like the Samaritans and people like lepers, how much they would stay away from the unclean people. That is what they thought really their perfection and their holiness was so much about. And so Jesus is really confronting them in so much of this to get them to think, hmm, maybe I'm not really as good as I think I am because I'm not really loving people the way God says he does. So Jesus didn't go from undermining their reliance on behaviors to telling them to focus on them all the more. That word perfect there is a Greek word, teleos, and it means mature. It means complete. It's a root word of the last word that Jesus said on the cross when he said, it is finished. It's to tell us die, which means mission accomplished. So here Jesus tells, again, the Jewish people that the ultimate maturity, if you're going to have any goal, even though this in and of itself is going to be impossible too, but if you're going to have any goal, it's to love people like God does. But oh man, does the devil have so many Christians hoodwinked. Because when we make perfection out to be about what we do or don't do or what we eat or don't eat, what we wear or don't wear, what we boycott, all of these different things, when we make perfection to be about all these external things, then we're really missing the point. And really, when we make it to be about all of that kind of stuff, we actually become quite the opposite of what Jesus is saying God is like anyway, because we end up being more legalistic and judgmental than anything else. Because we think, well, if God is going to require this of me, then he sure is going to require it of other people. And if you're anything like I was for like the first decade of my really serious born-again faith, I thought that it was my responsibility to make sure that other people were holding up their end of the bargain. If they said that they were a Christian, I was going to make sure that they knew what it meant to stay right with God. And so I really enlisted myself into the holiness police, I like to call it. And I just had all these sin spectacles on, just inspecting everybody's life. And I didn't have an ounce of love or compassion really for anybody else because I really didn't have it for me. I didn't. I really didn't think that I was good enough to remain loved by God, to remain accepted by God, so I definitely didn't think anybody else was 
either. So just to kind of summarize this point, and I've spent too much time on it probably already though, but be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Is Jesus essentially saying your greatest goal would be to mature into the heartbeat of God, which is to love people like he does. Now, for some reason, some people really do not like this kind of a message. I mean, I have gotten a lot of flack from (laughs) armchair theologians on social media over this kind of a message. One lady just about blew a gasket, I think, when she said, Stop commonizing God. He is holy. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Nobody said anything about him not being holy. I mean, I wholeheartedly agree that God is holy. And yes, there are plenty of scriptures where it says to be holy as God is holy. But if you think holiness is about dressing like you've come off of a covered wagon, then you're missing the point. Or, if you think holiness is related to how mad God gets, and I think a lot of people think that. I mean, I kind of was raised in that kind of a a thing. God was holy because of his wrath, because of his rage, because of his anger. That's, That's what I thought, ready to zap me dead for my every mistake. I thought that's what made God holy. But if that's what you think holiness is too, then you really don't know what holiness is, because holiness means set apart. It means to be uncommon. That's what it is. And I live in central Florida. Anybody ever, maybe as you've driven down to Disney World or something like that, anybody ever been on I-4 in that area? Anybody there? Okay, we got a, we got a couple. Let me tell you, it is not uncommon for people to be full of rage. It is not uncommon for people to be mad and angry. Anger is not set-apartness. What I say is more uncommon is loving people despite the things that are unlovely about them. What is uncommon is loving people that are different than you. What makes God the most holy, I might say, is his very nature, which the Bible says God is love. What makes God different from the rest of us is how he loves people unconditionally. That's what holiness, I think, is all about. But another reason why perfection isn't really about having no weaknesses or having no inadequacies or no flaws or faults or failures is because Jesus came. Now, what what do I mean by that? Jesus came. And some people might say, well, didn't Jesus come to set the bar for how to live? I mean, that's how I thought for so many years. I thought Jesus came and he lived this perfect and sinless life and he set the bar for how we are supposed to live in the same way. But that's that's not why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come to set the bar. You know, God set a bar with law. That set a bar. And then religion constantly is raising the bar. But God is so merciful and God is so loving that he knew that we could not meet the bar. We could not reach the bar. We could not live according to that bar. So he sent Jesus to meet it for us. 
All of the laws and all of the legalism and stuff, if it had one purpose, it was to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we would realize that we cannot do this life on our own. We need a Savior to do it for us. The Christian life really is an impossible life to live. It's not just a hard life to live, it's an impossible life to live, which is why God sent Jesus to live it for us. So really, if you're going to have a pursuit of the Christian life, it's really not so much to be sinless like Jesus, it's really to let yourself be loved by Jesus. Allow yourself to be loved by Jesus. I mean, Jesus said it himself anyway in Matthew 5, 17, in that very passage in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law of Moses. I came to accomplish it. I came to fulfill it. He came to pay what needed to be paid because he knew you couldn't. And this is such a simple, it really is such a simple thought, but so many people just can't seem to get it. It really confounds the wise, maybe because it seems too good to be true to people, but that is the gospel, by the way. But if, if, perfection, if behavioral or situational perfection was possible, then why did Jesus have to come and die? I mean, why? If it was possible, just be perfect, and then Jesus wouldn't have had to come and die. But it wasn't possible. So hear me. God knew you couldn't be perfect, which is why Jesus came. But if you don't know that, and now everybody in here ought to know that because your pastor preaches this kind of message. But maybe you're like me and it's, it's in your head, but it's not getting to your heart. That's how I was for so many years. If you don't really know this, then what you will do is you will spend your time, your talent, and treasure trying to prove something that Jesus already proved, trying to do something that Jesus already did, trying to be someone that God says that you already are in Christ. And it will do you in, as I said earlier, because you cannot possibly become that in and of your own self-efforts, which is why Jesus says to find completion in him. Our completion is to be found in him. God's story is always told through imperfect speakers because, first of all, it's all he has. I mean, revelation, right? Can we all get honest in here and admit that we all are an imperfect speaker in one way or another? an imperfect person in one way or another. And because of that, God sent Jesus to make it so our imperfections no longer count against us, so that they no longer have to mean anything about us, so that they no longer define us, so that they no longer have to limit us, so that they no longer have to define us or defeat us. I mean, this idea really is the gospel. And if there is... If there is a truth that is going to shut down the enemy's attacks, threats, lies, and accusations in your life, it's this. Go look at 2 Corinthians 5.19. I'm going to take you through some scriptures here just so you realize this isn't just me talking. I mean, this is the heart of the gospel here. 2 Corinthians 5.19. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He's really talking about what Jesus is doing on the cross here. God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. 
Now, that verse right there deserves you just to go home and reflect on it and just think of some of the implications of that for your life. I mean, that really is huge, and I don't know that you can get it all in just one setting. You really got to go home and reflect on that. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. But you could replace that word sins with imperfections, inadequacies, faults, flaws, failures, weaknesses. Anything that's not God's best is really what it means there. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world himself, no longer counting people's imperfections against them. And then he goes on to say, and I love this, and he gave, he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. Reconciliation means peace with God. It means restored relationship with God. Jesus came to count our imperfections no longer against us so that we could be brought back into right relationship with God. And now some, some people like just can't get this and some real religious people want to show me their butts and say, but, but, but what about this and what about this and what about this? But this isn't just one verse that I'm taking out of context here. As I said, this is the heart of of the gospel. As you look at what the angels proclaimed at the birth of Christ. Maybe you know this from a Christmas card, if nothing else, but they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. That is the angel saying, because Jesus is here, peace with God is returned. Reconciliation is here. And then John the Baptist, as he sees Jesus coming, in John 1.29, he gives 13 words which have been called in church history the greatest sermon ever preached. I mean, these 13 words really changed my life when I really saw them. But John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold Jesus. Behold the One who takes away the imperfections, who takes away the inadequacies, who takes away the weaknesses so that they no longer count against us, so that they no longer mean anything about us, so that they no longer define us. Behold he who does that. Now is this a license to sin? No. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I've ever said. That's not what I'm saying now. That's not what I'm going to say. That's not what this is talking about. But what it is saying is that it is a license to be loved. It's a license to be loved as a human being. It's a license to be loved as a work in progress. It's permission to be imperfect. And really, all throughout the Bible... I mean, you you see the character of God all throughout the Bible, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament too. You know, there are glimpses of grace there. And you see the character of God and how he, time and time and time again, chooses and uses even famously flawed people. I mean, isn't that what we marvel about? Isn't that what inspires us a lot of times when we read scriptures of how he uses these people who, yes, sometimes in their own choices were imperfect, but also were imperfect according to the traditions and the customs of their culture at that time too. But time and time again, we see throughout scripture how God doesn't 
choose people the same way that people do. And he really illustrated this and, and said this whenever he chose David to be king. I mean, you know David's story, right? He sent Samuel to Jesse's sons to select a king, and they kind of presented him all of the sons, and they left out David because David was the youngest, and in those days, the youngest didn't get anything. I mean, they didn't get the inheritance. They didn't get anything. So they thought, surely God is not going to choose this person, but yet that's exactly who God chose. And in choosing David, God said, people look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord chooses based on the heart. Abraham is another great example. He came from a family of idol worshipers. And God chose him to be the father of the faith. Moses. God called him to lead his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. And Moses argued with God, but I can't. I have this speech impediment. I'm not good with my speaking. And God chose him. Rahab was a former prostitute that's included in the lineage of Christ. Gideon is one of my favorite stories. You know Gideon's story? Self-described weakest person in his tribe that was hiding from Israel's enemies at the time called the Midianites. When God appeared to him in the very place, I mean, get this, in the very place of his hiding, and, and he, he called out his destiny to him, and he said, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. And Gideon was not in a place, he was not in a position where he thought or it looked like to anybody else, I'm sure, that he looked like a mighty hero. Yet God said, go, I am sending you. When Gideon tried to argue, but Lord, I am the weakest in my tribe, God said, go, I am sending you. Who you are, as you are, I am sending you. And God didn't tell him to go get strong, even though that's what Gideon did. I mean, that's what most of us try to do. God calls us, and now we think we got to go get strong and fixed up and get, get perfect enough. And I think that's what Gideon was basically doing whenever he went and tried to build an army of 30-some thousand people. And God had him winnow down the warriors to 300 people. And ultimately, what God did is he showed himself strong through Gideon's weakness, through his imperfections. And those are just a handful of stories from the Old Testament. How much more do you think that God chooses and uses people, imperfect people, since he sent Jesus, who no longer counts our imperfections against us? Maybe that's why in choosing the 12 and in choosing the people to really start the early church, maybe that's why God chose a whole bunch of people that were just misfits and outcasts, really to turn the world upside down. Think about Matthew, tax collector, Jewish tax collector, hated by his very own people, considered a traitor. God chose him. One of my favorites is Timothy, the Apostle Paul's protege. Do you realize Timothy was a big cultural no-no in those days? It wasn't his fault, but it's the way it was. It's what he was born into. He was the product of a mixed marriage. His mother was Jewish and his father was Greek, and the two of them getting together in those days was a big, big no-no, and so that meant Timothy couldn't do certain things. He was not allowed to be educated 
around other Jewish boys. He couldn't be part of Jewish festivities, all because of this imperfection that the culture ultimately said at the time. Yet God chose him, and God used him to help establish the New Testament church. And, I mean, do we really even need to talk about Paul? I mean, Pharisee of Pharisees, right? Persecutor of the church. Nobody would have chosen Paul to be the leading evangelist to the Gentiles, to write two-thirds of the New Testament, to do all that he did. No human being would have done that, and the disciples didn't. I mean, in, in choosing the replacement for Judas, they, I think, kind of had this selection committee and tried to find somebody that fit the church, church growth business model probably perfectly and find the most educated person, the most experienced person, and just the perfect person to fit the mold. And they chose this man named Matthias that you never hear about again after they chose him. And I think that's because God had chosen Paul. He chose somebody that humans wouldn't choose, and God then was the one that qualified Paul. God was the one that established Paul. God was the one that empowered Paul by his grace, which is how God always qualifies somebody. It's what God always does. And if I might just be a little vulnerable with you here, you know, I don't say what I'm about to say to evoke any kind of response out of you or anything, except I've got a point here, but even in standing here, me doing what I'm doing, and I mean, God has given me tremendous opportunities in my life so far just to write books, and tomorrow I'll be on a TV program, and my app has been downloaded by like a quarter of a million people, and just incredible things that God has allowed me to do in this unique role that he's put me in. But in my time in ministry, there have been moments where when I look at where I came from, the town I came from, the churches I came out of, I think, you know, Lord, I've almost been apologetic. I've been, Lord, surely there would have been a better person for you to choose to do this out of the groups that I came out of. Surely there would have been a person that would have been a little more normal than me. Surely there would have been a person a little bit more extroverted, had a better personality, been a little bit more fit the mold for this type of thing than, than, than me. And God has since shown me some of the reasons he particularly loves to choose some of the most imperfect people, and I'll get into some of those reasons here in a few minutes. But the reason that I said that is because I suspect there are some people here. Some of you are also battling discounting thoughts about yourself. I suspect some of you have probably been almost apologetic and thought, surely there was a better person than me to have the role or the job or the position that I have. Maybe some of you have thought and even prayed to the Lord, Lord, surely there was a less flawed person to be the parent to my children. Or Lord, surely there was a less flawed person to be the child to my parents. Maybe you've even discounted yourself 
from even pursuing the dream or the goal or the calling or the role or the life. Because you have said, why would God waste his grace on someone like me? Why would God waste his grace on someone with a past like mine or even someone who deals with present struggles like I do? Well, let me tell you, it's precisely because of God's grace that he would do that. Hear me. You are chosen by grace. You are qualified by grace. You are empowered by grace. You are established by grace. And in case you're thinking that maybe I'm talking about somebody else, I'm talking to you. You with the past of pain and promiscuity, God chose you. You who felt like your parents never wanted you, who have questioned all of your life whether you are wanted, God chose you. You who battle something that has made you wonder if you belong, that has made you feel like you are someone who is wrong, God chose you. You who people have told all your life that you don't have what it takes to succeed, I'm telling you that God chose you. And some of you would think, why would he do that? And I say, why wouldn't God do that? If what the angels announced is true, if what John the Baptist said is true, if what the Apostle Paul proclaimed is true, that Jesus came, and if we believe in him, if we have accepted him, then our imperfections, our weaknesses are no longer defining us, are no longer being counted against us, then why wouldn't God use or choose you? As a believer, you are as right in God's sight as that person who didn't have the traumatic past. You are as right in God's sight as that person who doesn't struggle with those symptoms. You are as right in God's sight as that person that had the picture-perfect family growing up or as that person that you think has the perfect family right now. In Christ, we all stand on level ground. Did you hear me? In Christ, we all stand on level ground. The Bible says, because of our belief in Jesus, Romans 3.23, we have been made right in God's sight. And here's the thing. If you will really let God love you, despite and through your imperfections, if you will let God's love heal the shame of your imperfections, then I'm telling you, the things that you think are wrong about you are actually what God will use to become your unfair advantage. I mean, he will. Those people that I listed off from the Old Testament there, a lot of them are part of what is in the book of Hebrews called a Faith Hall of Fame, which as Paul or whoever wrote Hebrews goes through this list of, of people says their weaknesses were turned to strength. Not replaced by strength, it actually says their weaknesses when surrendered to God, when they just allowed God to work through them, who they were, where they were, their weaknesses, their imperfections actually became their very strengths. 
What you think counts you out, I'm telling you, is what God will use to count you in. And there are several reasons for it. There are several ways, at least, of how God can powerfully use our imperfections as part of his plan. And one of them is just that in your imperfections, you actually have the opportunity to be more impactful than if you didn't have them. For one reason, some of the things that we don't like about ourselves, some of the things that we hate about ourselves, some of our quirks and our qualities aren't actually things given to us by the devil, but they're things given to us by God. And we're fighting him to change this or that, make us a different personality, make us more bold or make us more less talkative or make us whatever. I mean, I was there. I'm naturally an introvert. People don't always know that when they see me just doing this, but, you know, I get outside of this environment and I, I have to recharge with some alone time after something like this. And I used to think that was the devil's doing, trying to hold me back from what God had called me to, because it just seemed like everybody that was doing what I do, that's a speaker, just was this real bold and big personality. I mean, we used to have people that would come to our church, guest speakers, and they would Talk about how they practically just led the whole airplane to the Lord on the way to the church. And meanwhile, I got to get on an airplane and somebody starts talking to me and I'm like, would you please shut up? You know? So I'm like, the devil gave me this personality and it's standing in between what God wants for me. But finally, God settled me down and said, I gave you that. And I have learned as I have leaned into that that it actually has given me advantage, that I can do something as an introvert that extroverts can't do, and they can do things that I can't do. But there is a strength, especially when it comes to writing books and some of the messages and things that I I speak. It really causes me to be very introspective and hopefully mine for some deep things sometimes. So there's a strength in the way that God made me that I used to think was wrong that I have now embraced as me. But even those things that that maybe God didn't plan for you, maybe those things that he'd rather you not have, even those things, God will take and he will redeem into something that serves his plan. As Kent was saying just before I started, we were kind of whispering in the middle of, of the worship. It's amazing when we look back in our lives and we think about the rejection and just the things that the enemy threw at us to try to bring us down. I wouldn't necessarily want to relive any of those moments, but I can't regret them because God has redeemed them to bring us to where we are today. He's turned them into good. I have a friend of mine who has a very high level of ADHD, and I'm talking like high level. So much so that when he was in graduate school before he was diagnosed with everything, his professors actually kept asking him if he has a learning disability, and they suggested that maybe he should not pursue the career that he was pursuing, and he's a high school teacher. And so he, he went and he got medicated, and that helped him certainly, but it still doesn't make him great at lesson plans or following lesson plans at all, yet still in his weakness he went. And he went on to do that thing that they told him he was too limited to do. 
And what that so-called weakness actually created him to be is this very out-of-the-box creative teacher that the students absolutely love and respect, so much so that they named him a teacher of the year for his entire school district and county. And I'm convinced, I mean, and he's just one of many examples, but I'm convinced that he wouldn't be nearly as impactful without that so-called weakness than he is with it. And you can look at just about anybody who has really found some sort of success in their life, whether that's Thomas Edison in creating the light bulb or Oprah and how she found her gift for interviewing, it's really all when somebody finally embraces those things that maybe they didn't like about themselves and finally leans into some of those things and says, okay, you can take me or leave me, but this is me. When they finally get to that point, and I'm telling you, that's what I found in my life. My greatest anointing, my, my greatest confidence, it came from when I finally leaned into those things and let God work, let God show his strength through my imperfections. But another reason is that if you really want to do as Jesus said, to be perfect as God is perfect, and to be loving like God is loving. Yeah, I think it's a good goal to have. Like I said, none of us are going to be perfect in that. So don't make a law out of how much you love people either because you're not going to be unconditionally loving. But it's a good goal. And if, if you're going to even have any chance at that, then as a human being, really... It's when you take a good, long, hard look at yourself and you realize what God loves you in spite of. When you look at what God has forgiven you of, that is really the best way of growing compassion and empathy and love for people that you don't understand everything about their lives either. As I told you, I live in Orlando, Florida, and we've got this thing called Disney World, and I have an annual pass for Disney World, and it is a great grace tester because I'm telling you, there are people there from every walk of life and people that walk in every way in life. I mean, literally different kinds of walks there too. And if I hadn't been through the process really of looking at myself and seeing what God loves me in spite of and how God's forgiven me in spite of different things and what he's forgiven me of. It'd be easy to look at a lot of people living in ways that you don't always understand and maybe even judge them out of being made in the image of God and just have nothing but a judgmental eye towards everybody. But this did wonders. Me just leaning into some of these things really did wonders for my ministry because it's brought a whole lot of life instead of legalism to my preaching and my counseling. I am convinced that I am a better minister because I understand that I have imperfections than if I didn't have any because it's given me a compassion I wouldn't otherwise have. And really, I mean, that's a secret sauce to ministry. It's pretty hard to minister to people if you have no compassion. That's where ministry happens. It's when you can get down to the level of hurting people. But the other thing that God does with our imperfections 
is they actually may be one of the best ways of showing his goodness and his power to other people around us. There's this passage in Scripture that just baffles a lot of people, and it did for me for many years. It's 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul, he talks about, he kind of breezes through some of these really supernatural things that are awesome that you would think he would just want to boast in and talk about all the time. And you would think those would be the things that would get people's attention about the power and the goodness of God. Things like being caught up into heaven and stuff. But he says, they're worth talking about, but I'm not going to do it. Instead, I'm going to boast in my weaknesses. And he goes through this thorn in the flesh that we really don't know exactly what it is. We know it wasn't given by God. It could have been one of his haters. It could have been a headache. It could have been a co-worker. It could have been a mother-in-law, except for Paul wasn't married. So in his case, it wouldn't have been a mother-in-law. But whatever the case, three times he said he begged the Lord to take it away. And all three times, God's answer was the same. It was grace. My grace is sufficient. And I mean, this, this really, this was a tension for me because I was like, especially back when I was in, in the notion that it was just always God's will just to change everything I thought was wrong with me and other people. And so I really thought, Lord, why would Paul say that he prefers to boast in his weaknesses? How can that be? And God said something to me that really really changed me, ministered to me, healed me in a lot of ways, and, and it has become kind of a theme through the way I minister too. And God just said to me, he said, Kyle, my grace is equally as miraculous. My grace in a weakness is equally as miraculous as the removal of it. I said, God, how can that be possible? Why? And he said, my grace is the miracle of my perfect presence entering and upholding human imperfection, giving them a strength to press through what the enemy meant to subdue. Now that's a pretty meaty word that you might have to chew on for a little while like I did. God's grace is the miracle of his perfect presence, entering and upholding human imperfection, giving a strength to press through what the enemy meant to subdue. Some people will say, I don't know what to do with grace. It's not tangible. What do I do with it? What does it mean? And if you don't know what to do with grace, then you're actually on the right track because grace really is being right with God despite what you do. And it's also... God's empowerment despite your own lack of power. In other words, grace is showing up surrendered to God as you are and then watching God work through who you are. And I'm telling you, to me, there's nothing more encouraging, there's nothing more that shows the goodness of God than people who may be like Gideon or Moses who persevere through weakness, who stay determined that God is good and God is loving despite what they're going through. 
I think there's nothing more that shows God's power to other imperfect people than that because it says to other imperfect people, which are all of us, it says that the same God that upholds me also will uphold you. It says to other imperfect people that the issues and the situations and the obstacles and the struggles that you face don't have to define you. They don't have to disqualify you. They don't have to count you out. They don't have to limit you. They don't have to defeat you. And like I said, I think that is more encouraging and probably more relatable than if God were to just change and fix and remove everything that we don't like about ourselves and every imperfection. But let me say this. You can breathe a sigh of relief. You can take yourself yourself off the treadmill of striving and working to try to attain from God and try to be good enough before him. You have permission to be human. You have permission to be a work in progress without any condemnation. You have permission to be imperfect. God's not surprised by you. You know, that was a big thing for me. I think for many years I lived thinking that I was a surprise to God and that, oh no, if he figures me out, then whew, I'm really in trouble. And then I realized, you know, I don't take God by surprise. He knew everything. Psalm 139, 16 says that our lives were recorded in his book. Our lives completely laid out. I mean, like all the good, the bad, and the ugly of each one of our lives was laid out in his book. He saw it all which means you can't surprise him, which means that your two steps forward, one step back journey doesn't surprise him. Neither does your two steps forward, three or four steps back journey. None of it surprises him. What you think is wrong about you doesn't change God's mind about you. Hear that. Somebody's got to receive that and let that free them tonight. What you think is wrong about you doesn't change God's mind about you. And I might even say, Christ writes you despite you. As a believer, Christ writes you despite you. Now the devil will always try to tell you that they do change God's mind about you. And he's going to use all of your imperfections and all of your failures and all your inadequacies and weaknesses and you name it to try to convince you that they do. That's all the power he has. He can't change God's mind, so he works to try to change yours and limit you because you really only rise to the level of who you believe that you are. So if he can limit you in your mind, then that's really all the power he has. And that's really, I mean, when I talk about all my shut up devil stuff and everything, this is really the message here. Is that the current version of you If there's nothing else you get out of this message tonight, I want you to leave with this this truth here. The current version of you, who you are as you are sitting right here, the current version of you in Christ because of grace is qualified for whatever God brings you to, for whatever God asks of you, for whatever God calls you to, The current version of you, 
is qualified for whatever God has for you. Now, is that good news for you tonight, church, or what? Is that good news? Let's give Jesus praise. He's the one that made it happen. He's the one that makes it possible. Now, I want us all just to close our eyes here for just a minute. and I don't ever really want to end a service without an opportunity just to see if there's anybody in here that hasn't said yes to Jesus that hasn't said, yes, Jesus, I believe that you are God's son. I believe you died to take away my sin nature so that I could have your nature of rightness and peace with God. Is there anybody in here, just raise your hand quickly, that would say, I have never said yes to Jesus? Anybody? Anybody here? Looks like that we're all good. Well, I want to pray for us all here as we close. And Father, I just thank you so much for your love and your grace, God. Father, for anybody that has been sitting on shame, whether it's from past regrets or present struggles, Lord, I just pray right now that their mind, their spirit has been awakened to who they are in you, how much they're loved by you, God. And how in Christ you have made them right, Father. Lord, may nothing condemn them anymore. May nothing cause them any more shame. But may they rise up from this moment and rise up from this service to be that made new, made right, made whole, made holy person that you have made them to be. May they not spend one more minute trying to prove something that Jesus has already proved or do something that Jesus has already done or trying to be someone that you already say that they are. Thank you, Father, for the fruit of this word that will go forth in their lives. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. If God is changing your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. If you would like to give or would like more information on how we are making a difference, visit overcomerschurchinternational.com.